0: There will always be in our society, as long as we are being run by human beings, there's going to be segments of both the right and the left that you just can't pull into some unification. And so I think you've got not completely worry about those fringe elements and focus on that school teacher, focus on that counselor, focus on those truck driver and the farmer, the doctor, the lawyer, the folks and, and see what we do have in common. Unity doesn't mean we all agree with each other. It doesn't mean we are lockstep, hand in hand, all on the same issues. Unity means protecting the United States of America and the institutions of our government. How we go about running the government, how we go about the issues of the day, you can have disagreements on that. But to resort to violence, to do these kind of things, is something that we've got to try to figure out. We unify around 9-11. We unify around the Boston Marathon bombings. We unify around tragedies, but we also unify around our space program that put men on the moon. That's the way I think of unity, and that is things that we do have in common, and we've got so much in common. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron
1: Steslow. As we prepare for Donald Trump's second impeachment trial, I want to get a better understanding of how we should expect the impeachment trial to play out, if we should expect this trial to be different from Trump's first impeachment, the importance of holding elected leaders accountable for their actions, and how we should expect a 50-50 Senate to function going forward. And who better to help us dig into this than someone who just completed his term in that chamber just a few weeks ago, former U.S. Senator Doug Jones. Senator Jones served in the United States Senate from 2018 to 2021 after defeating Roy Moore in 2017. Before running for Senate, he served as an assistant U.S. attorney and the United States attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, and he has decades of experience in private practice. Since leaving the Senate, Senator Jones has become a CNN political commentator. Senator, thank you for making the time to have this conversation today, and congratulations on your new role. Thank you, Ron. I'm excited about the new role, but I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. So, I want to start by talking about the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. It was difficult to watch, to say the least, and we've heard from a lot of people that it was startling. But having worked there, I wanted to understand how you were feeling as you as you watched this play out.
0: I, I was both sad, I was angry, uh, and I was frightened for my Colleagues, my former colleagues that were up there uh in the middle of that. Um, as we played out this, you really didn't know for a moment how this was going to end. Uh, and it to, to watch the United States Capitol, which is just a sacred place in my view, um, be just the window shattered, hmm. uh police officers beaten with flags for God's sakes. Um people running around there and they're taking selfies like it was just a day at the park. It was just, it was stunning and it was frightening. And um, I think it's going to take a while for folks to get over that, especially up there. So looking at Trump's rhetoric
1: before the storming of the Capitol and Rudy Giuliani telling them to have trial by combat. and And then there was this video that I just saw this morning, which I don't know how I had missed it earlier, but I saw the video that they played right after Rudy's speech, which was the closest thing to fascist propaganda that I have seen ever. It was extremely alarming. But can you help us understand the charge of incitement of insurrection as a a legal term? That's what they're calling
0: it. What does that actually mean? You know, I think it's it's kind of a broad term, and that is both a challenge uh, for the house managers, but it's also gives them some opportunities, because I think they are going to have to connect the dots between the words that were said uh, and what ultimately happened, as opposed to just simply a planned march on the Capitol. We've seen those over our Mm. history, Mm -hmm. but this was different. And I think from a perspective of of an impeachment trial, you're going to have to look beyond just those words right there. Mm. You've got to put those words in the proper context of all that was going on and all that the president and others, whether it's Giuliani, whether it's Congressman Brooks, anybody that spoke on that stage. I think you've got to look in a broader context and what was going on since the election. And sometimes even before where they were setting up this entire fraud theory, they knew where they were going to lose this election, I believe. So they're setting up this entire fraud theory, but then the president kept doubling down, tripling down, you name it uh, over the course of this. And everyone knew that it was working some people, not everybody, not all of the Trump supporters, uh-huh. but certainly some people into a frenzy. And I will tell you that the thing that I think has is always shown, but no one has really fully connected the dots yet, and I don't know if the impeachment matters will, but from my perspective, the most telling thing about whether or not this was really uh, the statements of the president were an incitement to, to riot and commit violence was when he said, we're going to march to the mm-hmm. Capitol and I'm going to be there with you. Yeah, but he didn't do he it. Didn't he do didn't it. go. Why did not he didn't go? He didn't go because either he or his security team or others knew or had a good reason to know that that crowd. Remember, we're we're watching it on TV. And we're watching the president. Yeah, he's watching the crowd. He is seeing people. And when he says, "I'm going to go over there with you," and he didn't go, I think that that is a state of mind that could be very damning in this impeachment trial, mm. even for staunch Republicans who will vote to a who will vote to acquit. In yeah. my view, yeah, that's and so that's how I see that play. It's out, very
1: so. direct. Yeah. So you have. Uh, served our country as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Can you walk us through how you're thinking in the charges that are being brought to those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th? I mean, we, we, let's set impeachment aside for just a moment and just how would you prosecute the case uh, for those people?
0: Well, first of all, I'd prosecute anybody I could get their damn names and identities, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's number one. Anybody that got into that capital, now I think, or or, or, or did damage uh, in and around the capital, If I could get hold of them and find their names uh, and identities, I would prosecute them in some form or fashion. That may be as low as just destruction of property. It could be misdemeanors, but I don't think anybody is, should get off the hook if they can. Now, now identifying people is... is That pretty difficult because you had a lot of people there. Yeah, but for those that you know really did the damage, that and you can identify a lot of those people through social media. And a lot of people are
1: doing that now. Yeah, absolutely. People,
0: family members, others are coming forward and helping identify. There is probably a myriad of charges um, that could be brought, but for folks who are making statements about hanging Mike Pence, about you know, I think that's a direct threat. Uh, and there is a a um, specific statute that deals with just threats. It doesn't have to be something you're about to carry out, mm. but you know, as a former uh, assistant U.S. attorney, back for some reason back in the day, I was called on by Secret Service to to handle a number of cases where threats were made against the president. Oh wow! You know, and and most of those people in the back in the day, and this is like between eighty and eighty four. They were, they had some mental instability and they were making that threat, and no one fully expected that it would be carried out. But you have to take it seriously. Yeah. These people, yeah, with those, the threats to Mike Pence were real. And I think they can make uh, charges on those kind of threats to the speaker, to others, the destruction of property, the conspiracy to uh, commit violence. There's a a whole range of possibilities under the federal criminal code because it was all committed on federal property.
1: Right. That gives the
0: United States attorney the opportunity to do so many things. Okay. Let's turn back to
1: impeachment. So having been in the Senate and in the Senate during an impeachment trial, what should we expect to see going into this week?
0: Well, I think you're going to see the House managers uh, present a pretty compelling case. If you've read their brief, you're going to you you that's their that's their outline, that's their trial brief, so to speak. Okay, uh, about what to expect. And I think you will see evidence, uh, tweets, speeches, statements made by any number of people over the course of uh, the couple of months, at least leading after you know the in the days and weeks after the election, because that's just building the false narrative that the the Trump team kept putting out there. I think you're going to also see, I I would assume you're going to see various other statements or tweets, some kind of things from folks like the Proud Boys, some of these other alt-right groups, um, and, and how this came together, how the whole march came together, who may have helped organize it, those kind of things. And you put all those pieces together, it culminates... It, in two things, number one, the march and on the mall mm. uh, where the president spoke, members of Congress spoke, and then you're going to see a just vivid, uh, I think, films of mm. actually what happened because mm. I think there is so much more that the public has not seen um that is now just coming out uh, in various ways. You, I, if I'm the House managers, this is not simply an effort to convict Donald Trump so that he doesn't run for office again. This is an effort to really show the American people what really happened, how close this democracy came to uh, crumbling uh, under the weight of these, you know, folks with QAnon t-shirts and Confederate flags. So the Trump legal team filed a brief last Tuesday
1: and they argued that a president can't be impeached after they leave office. Can you help us think through that reasoning and then also obviously share your thoughts on the essentially the president's legal defense being procedural in nature rather than substantive?
0: Well, they can't defend this on the facts. I, that's number one. And so it's just like any number of lawyers that defend mm. people accused of crime, you know, they're um, one I've laughed and told folks, I've got a great friend who's a defense lawyer who tells, when he does CLEs, it says, you know, the role of a, of a defense lawyer is to try to put as much distance between his client and the facts. <laughs> <Wow>. And it's, <laughs> it's going to be hard for them to put a distance yeah. between Donald Trump and the facts. <laughs> so then you kind of fall back to the procedural aspects. Uh, and they know that if they play that the right way, then there are—it's—they're already on record. Forty-five, I think, uh, Republicans on record of saying that this is not an appropriate process, and it gives it gives Republicans an out mm. to avoid the facts, to avoid a, a real serious look yeah. at a president of the United States uh, doing what he did. I believe knowing full well that there was an, a chance that serious violence would occur. So I think you'll see that play out. Um, you know, during the impeachment trial over the course of several days. From the defense standpoint, <clears throat> the procedural aspect is really their best shot. And um, I think that there is a legitimate constitutional question uh, about that. About the procedure? I, yeah, okay. about the procedure. I tend to believe that under the Constitution that you can uh, impeach anyone, any federal office holder hmm. uh, after they leave office because only the first piece, the second piece is, the punishment, and and they can be, um, you know, barred from holding public office. Now, Tim Keynes and Susan Collins had a, uh, had a resolution that didn't get any real traction, in which would make that finding as well. But the fact is, it, there is a legitimate issue uh, of that. But just because there's a legitimate issue, doesn't mean that if 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 its foot in front of you. That you basically, what they would be doing to vote not guilty, if they believe, if, Mm -hmm. and there'll be, you know, there'll be some people who believe that he didn't do this, but if you believe that he did that, to vote not guilty would be a basically what you call a nullification issue with a jury that, yeah, Uh. he's guilty but you know there's other mitigating factors there's other factors that come in you should find him not guilty yeah. that's what we're talking about is a, it's essentially jury nullification is what they t- seem to be relying on and to argue i see but that wasn't that essentially wasn't what happened during the first impeachment
1: but even though we even though we had several republican senators come out afterwards and say yes he did what he was accused of doing but they still voted against removing him
0: well there was a, there was a big difference in the first impeachment trial they really it was a it was a it was really more about the facts, okay? You know, and an interpretation of the facts and and how you to best put that forward. Then there was the separate part of that for a lot of senators was whether or not this rose to an impeachable offense, you know that uh, whether they considered it to be a high crime and misdemeanor under the law and whether it rose to a offense. And the Trump team, I thought, did a, a good job of trying to make the argument, Make that argument as much as anything that this was not. This was all legitimate. You may not like it. It may be one of those things that a president uh, should not do, but it doesn't rise to overturning an election, mm. uh, removing him from office, those kind of things. And I that see. that had a lot of uh, a lot of appeal to I think to so many uh, people in this country because it was it was a much more nuanced case. I mean, a phone call some things withholding aid. It was a much more nuanced case in which went straight to the heart of a president's power, his political power, as well as his constitutional power of what he can do in foreign policy. This is a big difference. This is a big difference that uh, I think factually it's a huge difference. And that's why you see so many people hiding under the cloak. And I say that with, with all due respect to some of my colleagues I still think they're hiding uh, mm. under the cloak because they don't want to rile up the base, and this gives them that blanket of security that they can um, that they can find not guilty. And just like the Marjorie Taylor Greene last Ugh. night that occurred, yeah. so many said, "Oh, I just I, I, it's reprehensible what she did, but procedurally, we can't allow this to happen." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Trump
1: legal team also argued that he was exercising his right to free speech. And I wonder if you can help us understand the limit on protected speech when it, when it incites violence. And, you know, I think everyone commonly understands that you can't yell bomb in a crowded theater, right? We have that understanding that, that speech isn't completely unfettered and without consequences, that there, that there can be checks on it. How can we understand the limit on protected speech when it comes to inciting violence and even the president of the United States inciting violence?
0: Yeah, it's 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 it can be difficult uh, to to determine, but clearly there is no protected speech if you are trying to get people to commit violence, or if you have some reasonable belief that your um, comments will incite that violence. Um, it, it's a fine line. I don't think that there is a, a a you know a bright line test where you can say, okay, this is this and this. Every every speech, every word, every action is going to rise and fall on its own words and the, and the uh, uh, accompanying violence that may occur afterwards. And that's why I think it's important to show that they set the stage. Yeah. If I'm prosecuting this case, it is important for me to show that they set the stage of cons- the drumbeat of fraud, the drumbeat of the election steal, the con- constant drumbeat of put this in so many people's minds. Our democracy is being taken from us. And that gets people riled up. And they knew that. They saw it in the faces of the people there. And so I think in those circumstances, uh, unlike the the person who walks into the firehouse and screams bomb or fire, where you don't have any of that and just the words themselves in that circumstance create the problem, here you build it up. Yeah. You build it up and you show because it would be like that person walked into the theater who had orchestrated giving out tickets to people who they knew were paranoid, yeah. that were scared of their own shadow, that would be susceptible to the kind of thing when you go into and you scream fire that they were just going to immediately panic. Well, they, they did that. They set this stage and then they just, it was like a tinderbox. And it didn't take as much of, of the speech to like that. And yeah. so that's where I think you go. That is such a good analogy
1: because for those of us who were actively engaged in the campaign throughout 2020, we saw this building over and over again. It was a narrative that didn't begin on January 6th, that culminated on January 6th. And there's been some terrific reporting now that Jonathan Swan is doing for Axios, putting together the pieces from behind the scenes, from deep background interviews about what the president knew and 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 what he was planning to do ahead of election night. And I think that's a really it's a really helpful comparison to the to the yelling bomb in a theater analogy that most
0: people are familiar with this was not a typical maga rally right okay right this is not a typical maga rally this was one where you're inviting people to come from all over the country because they've truly convinced them that the election was being stolen and their country was being taken away from them and I, I think people you know f- especially folks that are you know democrats and moderates and progressives tend to think that these are just a bunch of redneck cowboys up there ready you know all violent whatever these are school teachers they're they're em you know uh, ambulance drivers they're people out there and they were they're absolutely convinced And i think there's a deeper issue that we got to talk about at some point in this country yeah. about what would motivate folks like that, that are your next-door neighbors, your your aunts and your uncles and all, to not just be a, a Donald Trump supporter, but to go to that length to try to protect their country? And there's a deep-seated belief there that I think we have to understand— in order to get to the bottom of some of this,
1: yeah, you touch on a couple of topics that we're going to spend a lot of time exploring on this podcast. So maybe you'll come back and we can have that conversation because <laughs> sure. because I really think we have to get at the root of this and understand the the, the social and the cultural forces that 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 led to um, not you know this presidency and, and then that moment. But can you talk about how important it is to hold presidents accountable for their actions even after they leave office and put it in the terms that you're thinking about unity because we have these calls for unity the Biden administration is is advocating for unity but there there are lots of folks who are thinking and saying I don't want to unify with this this part of our society or the people who would, who would who would
0: who would do such a thing how are you thinking about those two things together yeah <laughs> i th- i think that that is one of America's greatest challenges going forward um and the way I see this is that unity doesn't mean we all agree with each other. It doesn't mean we are lockstep, hand in hand, all on the same issues. Unity means protecting the United States of America and the institutions of our government. How we go about um, running the government, how we go about the issues of the day, thats you can have disagreements on that. But to resort to violence, to do these kind of things, uh, is something that we've got to try to figure out. We unify around 9-11. We unify around the Boston Marathon bombings. We unify around tragedies. We unif- But we also unify around our space program that put mm-hmm. men on the moon. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the way I, I, I think of unity. And that is a, a, things that we do have in common, and we've got so much in common. There will always be in our society, as long as we are being run by human beings Mm. that have flaws, and we all have our flaws, we all have our inherent uh, biases and prejudices that we try to overcome in our everyday lives, as long as we've got human beings, there's going to be segments of both the right and the left. That you just can't pull into some unification. They're conspiracy theorists, they're looking for something. To stir up some uh, uh, not not John Lewis's good trouble, but to stir up some bad trouble. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. and so I think you've got to 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 not completely worry about those fringe elements and focus on that school teacher, focus on that counselor, focus on those the the truck driver and the farmer, um, the the doctor, the lawyer, the folks, and, yeah. and and see what we do have in common. I think Joe Biden is really positioned well to do that on a personal level. A lot of that is just by force of personality. yeah I think he's really uh, uh, positioned to do that. It, but this is a January 6th was a huge setback yeah. uh, for that. and it's going to take a lot more work. It's going to take a lot more prosecutions. and I think it's going to take a lot more getting the public to see mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. not it's not just elections that have consequences words have consequences nobody knows that more than folks in Alabama when you and, and in the south where you had governors and you know county commissioners and mayors that essentially incited lawlessness every day and um, that's I, you know it, it's going to i think we've got our work cut out for us
1: yeah here here one last question about the mechanics of impeachment and then i actually want to turn to the mechanics of a democratically controlled senate uh, functioning going into the future, but compared to the first impeachment trial where Republicans were in control, Democrats now have a very narrow uh, margin entering control. How will that change how the trial plays out? How will it look different um, with a democratically controlled Senate? And and what are the, essentially, what are the rules and the thresholds and how are they figuring it? Because I think, uh, as I understand it, the rules for witnesses have not yet been decided. They have a lot of sort of procedural questions in front of them.
0: Yes. So there's a set of rules that the, the Senate operates under, but they've also got to, to look and see what is it that the House managers would like to do in their case. And, you know, last time Democrats were calling for witnesses, we wanted to hear from, uh, John Bolton. We wanted to hear from folks yeah. in the room because of, of the facts of the, and circumstances surrounding that. I don't know if the House managers have in mind to actually call any witnesses or not. I know they issued an invitation to uh, Donald Trump. He declined. That is not surprising. But I don't know in this case that witnesses are as necessary. What you may see is uh, Capitol Police officers who, you know, I I had a conversation recently where some of these officers who were out there said that the, the moment that they heard, Um, the president's speech on the mall, the moment they heard others, they knew they were in for some trouble. Mm. Um, That's more like an expert witness because everybody knows what happened and the violence that occurred. That's more like an expert witness to say, this is what I heard. If I'm hearing this as a police officer, Uh, I can't, I can imagine what the the people that are listening heard. The dog whistle type, uh, you know, comments that are saying, you know, I'm your president. It's okay to go do what the hell you want to do. So I think witnesses will be a key.
1: yeah.
0: Uh, if the house managers want witnesses and enough Democrats believe that that's appropriate, then they have the votes to get witnesses. Democrats did not have those votes the last time. I think witnesses are more were more important for the last impeachment trial mm. than they are here because you've got so much you can show by tweets by speeches, by comments, by videos, social media videos. You can put together a very compelling case without having to call a single witness. I would, quite frankly, I'm just not sure where that they will go. I think overwhelmingly most of this case will be built with presentations, Mm. like we saw last time. Yeah, The videos, the speeches, the arguments, and the comments. Because it's all public information. It's all public information, and it's not like it was playing out too much inside the white house and the oval office in secret um like you like the last time this is this was open dialogue uh from the very beginning yeah which you would you would assume would create far less room for doubt well i think so you know but look let's be fun, uh, honest about yeah. this uh impeachments are political trials okay yeah. uh, you, you know throughout our history we've seen very rare where people in uh, the House and the Senate have uh, the profiles and courage enough to do yeah. something that could challenge and, and jeopardize uh, their political position, and so these have become political. You go back to the Nixon impeachment; uh, it was it was a, a, a political war until the tapes were revealed, and then he avoided impeachment by resigning. the The Clinton trial, so much was the, you know the. The vast right-wing conspiracy, it was purely a political issue, and that's how this is being perceived. It's how the last Trump trial was perceived. It's how this one is being perceived, Um, but the difference here is the videos of the consequences of what Donald Trump said and did that were awful, that should shock the conscience of every American and certainly the conscience of every senator, every member of the House. And uh, so I think there is a difference. And I think the bigger question, though, is whether or not the House managers can make such a compelling case that they can overcome the political instinct of folks uh, in the Republican uh, 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 caucus to overcome those political instincts and vote to convict. Because at the end of the day, this is really not about Donald Trump, right? This is right. about this is about the the current president. Yeah, it's about the next president, and it's about the one for future generations. That's yes. I think got to be the primary focus of the House managers, because you know the defense is going to be arguing that this is just another step in the Democrats trying to 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 excise Donald Trump from America. Yeah they cannot let them get away with that. And in this case, they've at least got a much better opportunity uh, to talk about the future and conduct of future presidents than in the past.
1: And setting, cementing as precedent, something that fifth graders will read about in their textbooks for generations to come. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about some broader Senate questions. So impeachment aside... How how do you expect a democratically controlled Senate to function going
0: forward after this? I think it's going to be really tough. Um, you know, I think it's going to be very difficult. And there are some issues that I think uh, certainly uh, override the Senate rules, the traditional Senate rules. I think we're going to see that play out soon uh, in the COVID relief package. Um, I would not be surprised to see the president move somewhat uh, off of his $1.9 trillion uh, uh, Mm -hmm. bill to kind of accommodate a few things. But they're not going to move a lot unless there's a a lot more Republican buy-in. That's a big issue. But on the traditional stuff like the um, NDAA, National Defense Authorization, the budget process, Those are things that you can't simply do. You're not going to be able to govern this country by uh, reconciliation and getting a majority. You're still going to have to have the 60 votes. I think that the president and I think that the leadership on the Senate, uh, the Democratic leadership, are going to give Republicans every opportunity to work with them Mm. to try to do some things to get things done um, and to get some uh, things accomplished. That's going to mean that both Republicans and Democrats are going to have to try to find that common ground. Yeah, They're not going to be able to do uh, my way or the highway. And Democrats can't do that either. They can't do that. We can't allow this country to go from one side of the pendulum to the next just right. because of the election. Right. And I'm hoping that Republicans will see the uh, need and the ability to try and make things work. There's so many things that are going to be needed for the American people coming out of this pandemic, while we're here now, but also coming out. This is going to be a long-term recovery, and you can't just look at the dang stock market yeah. as yeah. A, an element yeah. of the recovery. <laughs> that just, I, you know, there ain't that many folks in Alabama that have a stock portfolio, right. okay? Right. We don't need to be, as Stacy Abrams said, we don't need to be looking at the stock market. We got to be concerned about the supermarket. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. this is a it's long-term, and I, so I'm, I'm hoping that they will w- give it a, a chance to work with, uh, Republicans uh, and not do anything to the filibuster rule but if they continue to get stonewalled you can count on the fact that there will be some effort to convince a couple of the Democrats would hold out to try to get them to change that filibuster rule I hope it doesn't come to that
1: yeah talking about Democrats working with Republicans to tackle some of these things one thing that I struggle with is how that very notion which used to be applauded you know bipartisanship is now a dirty word in a growing number of places, especially among bases of both parties, but definitely on the Republican side, do you think the incentive to work together is diminishing from their constituents? Do you think that incentive is diminishing? And what do you make of that?
0: There's no question uh, about that. But the reason for that is because of the very people in Washington, D.C. who are preaching that Mm. for their political purposes. I mean, when I was in the Senate, there was so much Collegiality and bipartisanship that went on behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, At the committee level, at the staff level. Have your arguments, but you would work on it. Get look at what we did with the NDAA, yeah. the National Defense Authorization, always a bipartisan bill. Yeah. Budgets, we we busted the budget caps to because people were hurting and we needed to do that. Yeah. <clears throat> I spent two and a half, almost three years working on a, a money laundering updates. Very difficult working with Senator Cotton, Senator Rounds, and Senator Warner. Coming at it from different ways, but we found that common ground and finally got it done. Uh, right before I left what's really sad though and and, and it was interesting because I, I had this conversation Lamar Alexander yeah. like to talk about this at yeah. one point that there is more bipartisanship in Washington DC than there is in anywhere in the country you can go, <laughs> you can go into Alabama you can go into his state of Tennessee go into, and and everybody says yeah we want you to w- work together but they really want to win
1: yeah they want yeah. their side
0: to win yeah and that's because of C-SPAN and, and watching all these speeches on the floor of the Senate, watching all the dueling press conferences. Yeah. Senators and members of Congress foster that in their constituencies for their political reasons. And they don't talk about it as much. They just give it lip service in these speeches. Behind the scenes, they're still doing it. I work really good with Ted Cruz on a number of yeah. matters Wow, uh, and, and, and others. So I think it takes... It takes a number of people in their speeches on the Senate floor, in their speeches back home to say, look, I am going to represent you and I've got our political beliefs, but, you know, I can't ha- we can't have it all our way. And we've got to work there, This this country was founded and s- the government was set up to try to be able to reach common ground. Compromise may be the dirty word, but finding common ground is a a phrase that everybody likes. The other thing I told my colleagues in my farewell speech, I said, try to avoid using the words negotiation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because when you hear that Republicans are negotiating with Democrats, the common sense view of that, uh, that people have in the real world is that you're negotiating about them, right? Them being right. Republicans and Democrats. Right. You're not negotiating for the people. Right. You're not doing for so. Oh, that's a good point. You know, and it's it, everybody saying, okay, well, the Republicans just want this to help their political power, and Democrats want this to help theirs. Yeah. What about us? Yeah. How yeah. about negotiate for us a little bit? And, and I said, you know, just avoid the term if you can possibly do it. Yeah, looking for solutions. Looking for <laughs> yeah. solutions. Looking for finding common ground that everyone can can live with and and understand and we can go forward uh, together. It's just those little things, I think, in messaging yeah. that is creating so much of the problems um, that we see out in the American electorate right now. Yeah. Okay, uh, switching gears just a little bit. One of the things
1: that has jumped out at me is the strong white supremacist contingent among the insurrectionists. And as I was thinking about this conversation, I was reminded of the bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. So this was a case you tried about 40 years after the attack when you were a U.S. attorney. So as we're talking about accountability, can you talk about that case and tell us why it was so important for there to be accountability forty
0: years after the attack. Sure, thanks for asking. It's it's um, it was truly a remarkable couple of cases for a lawyer to work on. Um, it it really was uh, thirty seven and thirty eight years after the fact to finally achieve a, a, another measure of justice for the families, for the state of Alabama, uh, and for the community at, at large. Um. There are so many similarities, though, that you can take from that era, not just the church bombing case, but from the Medgar Evers mm-hmm. murder, from the Emmett Till murder. Mm-hmm. Because what you saw in the 1950s and 1960s, you saw governors and you saw elected officials that were basically empowering the, the Klan and these uh, white supremacist organizations, that, yeah. the National States Rights Party. Uh, and others. And they were empowering them with their rhetoric. And they were giving those dog whistle politics. And that, and then when there was violence, they would just kind of sem- somewhat turn a blind eye. And and these folks knew that they could get away with it. They thought they could get away with it. And they damn sure did for a long, long time. Decades in yeah. some instances. And so when we started to put that case together, we went back. And, you know, I, I looked at not only the case file, which was massive, yeah. Uh, because I will say, even under a J. Edgar Hoover administration, the FBI did a hell of a job back in the 1960s investigating that case. Mm. They really did. You just—it's just like so many others—you cannot always make the case at, at the time. But the fact is, we will, we looked at the case file, but we also looked at the history, what was going on uh, at the time, and yeah. and when I tried that case, I started back in 1954. When oh, wow. with the Brown versus Board of Education right, case. Right, right. Because I had to connect the dots all the way to 1963, because that case came out in 1954. In 1957, when one of the great leaders of the movement, Fred Shuttlesworth, um, tried to enroll his children in an all-white school, he was met with violence, including one of the defendants in the church bombing case. This is 1957. He got beaten. He and his wife both got beaten up outside Phillips High School. And so there was this theme running about school desegregation mm. that that carried forward. We had freedom riders, but then the 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 fact that often get got lost in the church bombing was that just you know literally two weeks before that the schools in Birmingham were desegregated for the first time. There was a lawsuit, and so the the church and the children had already become symbols of the movement back with the fire hoses and the dogs just a few months earlier. But now the federal courts have ordered desegregation of schools and black kids were going to white schools for the very first time. And Birmingham was literally like a powder keg. And on September 15th, 1963, the kids and that church were coming together again, this time for a youth worship service. And that was the perfect opportunity for the Klan to do what they did uh, that Sunday morning. Yeah. And so there is all of these dots. And in the middle of all this, you've got George Wallace standing at the schoolhouse door. You've got George Wallace getting his state troopers trying to circle an elementary school to block two little black boys from yeah. going into that school that had to get ordered to be dispersed. You had Bull Connor. Uh, talking about this. You had all of this and same kind of incitement, the same kind of thing. And these guys thought they could do just about anything and get away with it because they had and they did for for so long. The parallels to that today I have tried to talk about are stunning. Yeah. They are absolutely stunning. Everything from very fine people on (sighs) both sides, you know, to just simply giving lip service to so many things to and and to say the proud proud boys you know stand up and stand by yeah. those are i mean to somebody that's listening to those words who is waiting to hear the green light yeah. go off it doesn't take much right and that's 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 why i see what the president has done uh has so inflamed everything that was going on and we really saw a ramp up of white supremacy in these alt right groups when president obama took office yeah Clearly, race was mostly responsible for that. Yeah. And they ramped up. It got worse. And then all of a sudden, Donald Trump is elected, and he is giving them tacit approval. Yeah. And and the, the irony is that Donald Trump had the best opportunity yeah. to stop it. Yeah. Because they listened to him more than anybody else. He could have said, there is a better way. We want everybody to have a shot at the American dream. There's a better way. And he could have stopped it, but yet, for political reasons, he stoked it. And that is just an absolute tragedy.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you connected the dots there, because I was going to ask, because you talk about, uh, in your book, Bending Toward Justice, you talk about how... You know, the bombers basically provided enough evidence through discussing the heinous crime with their families. Some of which was caught on FBI planted bugs and taped, and like the the evidence. The, uh, I don't know if I'm using the right words, but the profile of the
0: evidence sets seems to be very similar as well. Very, very similar. There is look history tends to repeat itself yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> And there are patterns to all of this, and there are root causes. Some of it is just basically race; other is class and economics. Yeah. Um. You know, there's a lot of things, but I think America is really going to have to take a good look uh, at some of this and do a little bit better job of monitoring this. I yeah. think that um, if I have any criticism in the in the last few years, it's not just of the president. I think. Uh, the the FBI, others just kind of dropped the ball. We've been so focused on international terrorism. Yeah, we've just dropped yeah. the ball here, and we've got to refocus. Because many, so much, many of these groups now have international connections. We're seeing this play out. You just saw that Canada just recently declared the Proud Boys a I terrorist that. group. I saw that. Well, there, there are international connections in Europe and other places that yeah. I think we have to come together both domestically, but also as, a, as, as part of, of society, a global society, yeah. to, to root this problem out.
1: To say nothing of the vulnerabilities presented from a national security perspective when foreign adversaries like Russia are using these groups to 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 exacerbate the tensions and, and and stoke violence because it's already here what we've learned from other experts and and guests on the podcast is that a lot of the stuff Russia used to interfere in our election was already here. Absolutely, they just and they just
0: amplified it. There's no question. And you know what? I go back. And <laughs> I'm a lot older than you are. <laughs> I remember the Cold War. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I lived. I was a kid, but I lived through it. I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, uh, and and I, I lived through um, <laughs> uh, through through a, a, atomic bomb drills at my school where they said, hide under your desk, as if that was going to do anything uh, for you. <laughs> but that's what we were told to do. But I can remember Nikita Khrushchev, the, the, the Russian leader, beating it taking his shoe off and beating it on the table at the United Nations. I can remember Nikita Khrushchev saying words to this effect. I don't know exactly. Talking to the United States, he said, we will bury you without firing a shot. think about that 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 uh, you know that was like the early 1960s maybe late 50s we will bury you without firing a shot well it took a while while, but if we're not careful yeah if we're not careful it and it not may may not be russia it could be china it could be any one of our adversaries because if you if you start crumbling within that's the key the bomb doesn't have to be for adversaries right Yeah.
1: Your role model, former Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley, uh, served as lieutenant governor while George Wallace served as governor. And I can't imagine this relationship provided a strong governing team among the two of them. So can you describe their relationship and how Baxley navigated dealing with the person who supported the policies of Jim Crow, you know, saying famously, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation
0: forever. Can Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting history because it actually, their relationship uh, in terms of serving together goes back even further. Uh, Bill Baxley was elected Alabama's attorney general in 1970 at the ripe old age of 28 years old, youngest AG in the country, very moderate, progressive kind of guy. Wallace was elected, reelected in that same year. Um, So for eight years, George Wallace was governor, Bill Baxley was lieutenant, I mean, uh, the attorney general. They, it, they later served with, they both went back later. I'll get to that in a minute. The, 1972, the 1970 gubernatorial election in which Wallace beat um, Albert Brewer, who had succeeded Wallace's wife, Lurleen, was one of the most racist, race-baiting, ugly um, elections Alabama has ever seen before. And has seen since it was. Wow. it was really, really uh, bad. That was seventy two. That was seventy. Seventy 1970, okay. Yeah. Okay. And you know, Governor Brewer uh, was thought to be one of those early kind of New South governors that we saw so many of. But instead, we put Wallace there. Now, as Attorney General, though, the Alabama Attorney General's office has is one of the most powerful Attorney General's offices in the country. Why is that? It, it, it just under our Constitution and the various powers that are given to the AG. okay um, And so the offices are very separate. Um, the AG has a, so much independence and autonomy. It's separately elected. it has a, an incredible amount of power. And so you saw Baxley not only start this case, and he tells me that that George Wallace said, look, you do what you got to do. Wallace had his own things that he was working on. He was running for president. Then he had to recover from his gunshot wound. He said, just do, you Mm. know, you do what you got to do because he knew that Baxley's political fortunes, not his, were going to be tied Uh, to that. And so Baxley courageously uh, went forward with that, prosecuted the first case in 1977, lost when he ran for governor in 1978. Mm. Um, but then came back in 1982. Wallace was termed out in 78. Baxley was termed out as AG, ran for governor, lost. Um, in 1982, they both came back. Uh, Wallace is elected governor again. Bill Baxley is elected lieutenant governor. That is That puts them a little bit more, yeah. in, it have to be a little bit more in sync yeah. in terms of legislation and and state priorities. The difference, though, is that by that time, George Wallace was seeing the political handwriting on the wall mm-hmm. and had pulled back and, and softened his segregationist stance uh, and was really, in, in fact, in 1982 in his last election, got a significant percentage of the black vote in Alabama. Um, and so it was a lot easier working relationship between the two of them uh, at that point. Uh, and it was Bill had not softened, had not changed at all. But Wallace had softened his stance just enough that they could still work together to try to do things for education, for economic development, those kind of things um, that governors and lieutenant governors are supposed to work on It's together. a fascinating story. Fascinating history. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. We have, you know, I, I got to tell you, you know, the, Alabama's political history, yeah. and I know every state's got it, but man, yeah. you could go back to when we were first became a state and you could write volume after volume after volume after volume about the things, almost almost something unique every year. Yeah, there's a richness there
1: that I think hasn't really been uh, popularized um, so much.
0: Yeah, and that's that's unfortunate. There is yeah. a richness there; it's gotten overshadowed by the, the Wallaces stand in the schoolhouse door, the fire hoses and the dogs and things like that. Uh, there is a richness. And the other thing, while all this was going on for Alabama, I'm glad you asked yeah. me about this because people don't realize this. <laughs> you, you know, we, people see Alabama and the political leaders uh, like Wallace and and others. But the fact is at one point in the 30s and 40s under FDR and Truman and even Eisenhower, Alabama was seen to have one of the most liberal uh, congressional delegations in the country. Wow. In the entire country. Now, they were always on the race issue. Yeah. That was different. Yeah. But when it comes to the federal government and the things, it was Alabamians who led the way to create uh, the Marshall Space Flight Center in Redstone Arsenal it was a, it was Carl Elliott who was the architect behind student loans huh. it was it was Lister Hill Senator Lister Hill who did the Hill-Burton Act to put rural hospitals across uh, America John Sparkman on banking and it was they were all the Clean Water Act Bob Jones and others on the Clean Water Act it was all things where the federal government wow. could help out the little guy Because Alabama was a rural state. It was a poor state. And so their job was to get as many federal dollars into our state as possible to lift people out of poverty. TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, (laughs) power, putting power um, in in all these homes. The Alabama delegation was really, uh, over the years, a remarkable and powerful uh, delegation in both the Senate and the House. That's fascinating to me. Um. Thank you for sharing more
1: about that because it's it's uh it's it's just an area of American history I'm sort of have a blind
0: spot to. Absolutely, so, and, and it all changed with the Civil Rights Act yeah. and the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. It all started to flip.
1: So I saw recently that you're a fellow at the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public yeah. Service, and um, and you're going to be talking about bridging the divide, and. <laughs> What a divide we have. <laughs> we, we've, seen, we've seen partisan divisions talked about a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're talking about racial divisions, economic divisions, uh, and the urban-rural divide, which I think is so important. The healthcare divide, the racial division. Can you talk about how important it is to look at all of these different divisions and figure out how to bridge them? And I think be more specific than we traditionally have been, than we definitely have been in recent memory, than just partisan divide.
0: Yeah, no, look, here's the, here's the thing. And if you look at the full title of my discussion group, yeah. it's Justice in America, Bridging the Divides. Mm. And so one of the mm. things that we are hope to explore is the connection between the divisions and justice, <sighs> because there are so many injustices in America that are the result of the various divides that we have, whether that's law enforcement, whether it is healthcare. If if someone can't get good healthcare, if black uh, women are dying at greater uh, rates in pregnancy than their white counterparts, there is an injustice there. And there is also a division because they're not getting that good healthcare. So we're exploring the connections between the divisions and justice. But on a more... Drill down type kind yeah, of level. Yeah. I really believe that what we'll, we're seeing, and as I was putting that syllabus together, there is an underlying racial divide that it, that goes through everything. Okay, I mean it literally runs through because, and it's 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 centuries in the making, yeah. and it's decades in the making in the United States because that racial divide is partly responsible for the. Uh, the healthcare divides that we've seen for the economic divides we have seen the education divides that we have seen so we're going to be exploring how we can both look at the individual in healthcare how we can focus like a laser on getting better healthcare because that's partly yeah. racial yeah but yeah. it's also partly rural versus urban yeah we can also go from there and it's a it's how People perceive their own stat, status in life and yeah. where they are, yeah. what they feel like they, you know, the resentments that they harbor yeah. uh, often. Yeah. Um, it's it's going to be a fascinating course that I think is, I, I really was excited to kind of get the opportunity because I've talked about it so much in my campaigns as a senator Um and especially from a voice coming from the south. Yeah. Because I've always said that so many of these divisions started in the south. Yeah. That the healing and the bridging can also start and maybe should start in the south and we can can lead the way. I just I love the way you're thinking about the
1: interconnectivity of all of that and also exposing people to more depth uh, in that conversation, then, then really is even available at a surface level in in our media landscape right now. Right. And yeah, I I'd, I'd, I'd love to take it with you. I, it's, <laughs> it's, it would be really fun. I'd enjoy that.
0: Um, <laughs> well, maybe Rob will turn it into a several part podcast <laughs> be, series. That would or be something. great. Yeah. There's so
1: there's so much more to discuss. But you know, before I let you go, I wanted to just tell you, you know, on a personal level, that I, uh, you know, as someone who grew up gay in a very conservative evangelical home i have i have very much appreciated your public example of support for your son and i i wanted to tell you that has meant a lot to me and to a lot of people i know and um And then I also sort of wanted to get your take on Pete Buttigieg as the Secretary of Transportation, and the two photos that have been set side by side: um, his his swearing in, obviously, and your swearing in uh, (laughs) with with your son there. So,
0: (laughs) yeah. Well, well, first of all, you're very kind to to say that, but you know, I I I believe that if folks truly believe in the the uh, creed of this country about all of us being created equal, we got to start. Treating people that way, and um, so it has been uh, a- an interesting development. I think for me uh, and my family, uh, and and uh, I mean not just me and my wife, but my extended family. Mm. Um, and and it's just like so many other things that you have you 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 tend to to see things and you love people unconditionally, but to do that for me because I was so public, meant yeah. I had to do more than just support Carson. It meant that I needed to speak out, yeah. to stand up, and to to understand. It was an understanding for me to do that and to, and to see how this country has changed dramatically uh, since, literally, I still believe that the gay marriage proposals across this country cost John Kerry the presidency in 2004. Yeah, I I don't think there's too. any question yeah. about it. Yeah. And to see how all of that evolved rapidly, and for Alabama to have played a part of that, yeah. even though, you know, we've got, um, even the, if you take a poll in <laughs> Alabama, it still is probably going to lose, but it's not going to lose near like it was, but it was Alabama lawsuits, it was Alabama cases, and some very courageous plaintiffs and some very courageous judges that stood up and did the right thing. And it helped propel me to the Senate uh, in 2017 over Roy Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and to now see Pete, Mayor Pete, Secretary Pete, <laughs> um, uh, in that spot, I just think is um, the, you know, I think it's so important, yeah. the message there, because I'm going to tell you, Ron, I am concerned about the U.S. Supreme Court still. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of shots across the bow that, that Justice Thomas and Justice Alito fired uh, a while back. But those. fortunately, fortunately, yeah. it appears that Justice Gorsuch has taken up the mantle of Justice Kennedy and on that issue and that that is going to be safe. But I don't think uh, what I worry about and I think everybody needs to be thinking about is that the anti-LGBTQ Um, movement is going to be guised as uh, religious liberties now. And that's going to be a real uh, problem because therein you you will have some uh, conflict with the First Amendment. And I think we've got to, you know, we got to be on guard for that. We got to look at it, but it also goes back to people need to educate folks about. Let's don't politicize that. Uh, let's just ex- let's just take what we've got and expand the opportunities and horizons for people, and thereby expand the the law and acceptance uh, uh, from folks. Again, find that common ground.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time today, Senator. I, I appreciate it, and our listeners, I know, have um, have. Love this conversation because we covered a lot more than I planned to. So um, I want to be respectful of your time. But is there anything else you'd like to share before we before we go?
0: No, we covered a lot of ground, and I just hope that uh, you know you're going to have a lot of listeners who are probably more progressive and more left leaning than um, than we've got here in the state. And so I, I, I just want people to remember that when we're talking about folks on the right. Uh, We're not necessarily talking about these crazy people who are beating uh, a police officer with flags. We are talking about your neighbors and your family members. And we need to be able to have open minds as well and not be so dogmatic Mm -hmm. that we put people down. We need to have these conversations and we need to try to, you know, everybody says, well, we need to talk talk more. We need to listen more and we need to learn, you know, where folks are coming from. I always fall back. To my literary hero, Atticus Finch,
1: that we need, to,
0: <laughs> we need to do what we can to walk around in another man's shoes yeah. and see things from their point of view sometimes. And you're still not going to agree with it all the time, but if you get a better understanding, we can come back to that unity that, that Joe Biden's talking about, that we're all talking about, um, and make some real positive changes for America. Because as we come out of this pandemic, we've got an opportunity We've got a historic opportunity um, to build a more just society than we had uh, uh, going into it, yeah. where all people have that access, where these divides in healthcare and education and jobs have narrowed. We'll never get rid of them completely. But we can narrow the hell out of them uh, going forward. Well so said. thank you. Well Thanks said. for having me today. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Hope to come back.
1: Absolutely. We'd love to have you. And just kidding, one more question before we let you go. Where can
0: people find you on the internet?
1: Where's the best place?
0: <laughs> you know, right now I'm kind of an unemployed vagabond uh, a little bit, but uh, I'm still doing some Twitter, which is at Doug Jones. Okay, I've got a, an Instagram that that Carson is telling me I need to do more of <laughs> on Doug Jones Bama. I'm not really much of a Facebook guy. I may do a little bit more of that. And as we go forward, I am sure that there will be other things that come up that folks will see me, yeah. uh, whether it's CNN or some other things. Things that I've got in the works, and I'm kind of hopeful about. So we'll see. But that's where, and then we're going to probably we, you know, we use the DougJones.com as our campaign website. So we'll probably revamp that a little bit to make it more of a a personal website going forward. Cool, terrific. Thank you to everyone at home for making the time
1: to have this conversation. If you have any questions or advice for us, we have a new email address, and you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. If you enjoy the show and you find this work meaningful, you can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode with anyone you think may find it interesting or useful. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.